I, I pressed the record button. We're recording. Welcome to video games. Hi. Hello. You. I can creak. I can creak lower and. I know you can. You, so. I wasn't. I wasn't actually trying to creak. Okay. I'm not going through a creak off. Welcome to Abnormal Mapping, episode 19. I'm your host, Matthew Marco, and with me is co-host Jackson Tyler. Hi. You need to be a little more lively than that. Hey! Video games, what's up? What's up happening in the Skype call? You're terrible, you know that, right? (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I do. I'm glad you know. I know. You know. We all know. Everybody knows. Goddamn monster. Mm -hmm. Less than 40 seconds in. Yeah, sure. Um, this is a very special episode, Jackson. You know why? Why? It's our Thanksgiving episode. Oh, thanks. So, I was uh, thinking about this the other week while I was in the shower, because these are the things I think about when I'm in the shower. Do you have any no. colonialist holidays in your country? Any, any what holidays? Colonialist holidays. Oh, colonialist holidays. Uh... Or are you too busy being a failed empire and riddled with guilt uh, to have those? We are the most failed empire at the moment. I don't think so, but I also have... To, like, we have saints days, but they're just, like, bank holidays. Like, I have no, nothing on anywhere close to the scale of Thanksgiving. Christmas is the only holiday people buy gifts for, or Easter if you have eggs. Well, yeah, nobody buys gifts for Thanksgiving. You just eat food and watch football. Everyone gets a then, day off from work. Wait, then why is then why is there all sales about like Black Friday's the day everything goes on sale because everyone has to buy things for Thanksgiving? No, no, no. Those that's it's just traditionally that's when like they do the push for Christmas shopping, so it's the first big day of the Christmas shopping season. So oh. you're buying things for Christmas on Black Friday. Okay, I was always very confused because I was like, makes little sense to have the, the equi- shopping have, day after well, we, Thanksgiving. Yeah, we have the equivalent of that, which are the January sales that come after Christmas, um, which has always been the big thing on Boxing Day. We have our equivalent, which is you know the worst, but whatever. So I always assumed, oh, clearly people get a lot of gifts on Thanksgiving. Strange. No, no, no. We we don't give gifts. We just eat food and people watch football and everyone takes a day off. And then the day after that, everyone gears up to do their consumerism. We don't have Boxing Day, so that removes the holiday. Boxing Day is barely a holiday. It's just a day after Christmas. Mm. I, it sounds cool. Do you know why it's called Boxing Day? I don't. So that's why um, I ask. No, I don't think anyone does. Okay. Some people do, but we don't as a tradition. We just ask each other, what the hell does Boxing Day mean regularly? Okay, I'm glad that this is just a thing that crosses borders, even though you celebrate the holiday and we don't. It's celebrate. I mean, there, there probably are holidays in our year that are like of that nature but we don't have like traditions for them I, oh sure i mean it's the day after christmas you just it's christmas continued 
But I mean, like, Thanksgiving, you have the meal. There's a thing that people do. There is tradition in Oh, sure. Like, shitty cultural imperialist tradition, but sure. Very much so. But with with us, it's just, oh, there's a holiday of some description, I guess. Not going into work today. Oh, the Everyone yells about Columbus Day when Thanksgiving's way worse. Like, Columbus Day, at least, is just the banks that are closed. Like, I don't celebrate Columbus Day, but I'll be eating a turkey on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Wait, what do you eat on Christmas? It depends on the family. Because Christmas is our big turkey day. There's no, there's no like, I don't think there's like a set cultural, this is what you eat on Christmas. I've seen turkey, I've seen goose. I think goose is traditionalist. Oh, we've always Um, had turkey Christmas, Christmas turkey. People do ham, I know. Um, So we clearly stole the turkey from Thanksgiving, but didn't have any Thanksgiving to put it on. I mean, turkey, if I'm not mistaken, is a North American indigenous bird, so yes. That's what we did. Goose, on the other hand, is hella British. Yeah. Would you like I've, a pheasant? Um, I don't know if I've ever had pheasant. I've had Cornish game hens. Oh, you're not a member probably of the like gentry, so I don't think you did have pheasant. No. You have Cornish game's head. Game hens. Go like game little, hens. Little tiny chickens. Actually, yeah. they're closer to turkeys, but they're very good. Okay. I like goose. Um, it's closer to duck. It's greasier. You know, game here. Yeah. These, these are, these, these are my meats. bird opinions. I'm these are birds. <laughs> oh, i got a foul mouth over there. <laughs> I've been playing Hotful Boyfriend today, so this all <laughs> dovetails out very nice. <laughs> We're not here to talk about that. No. It's actually a very special episode because it is our second gameography. Thanks. That's a callback to the last time I said thanks. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I was not prepared for your non sequitur callbacks. <laughs> don't don't worry, few people are. Okay, so uh, why don't you tell people what gameography is about, co-host? Gameography is a look back through the games of one particular game maker, and we will like, try to get a complete view of their work and just look. It's like a study in auteurism because that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to look at the work of someone in a way that people do in like movies or books or whatever and see how they've changed and the themes that remain constant or dissipate. And that's that's what Gameography is about. And this month, we have chosen to focus on the games of Mike Joffe, who is a game maker in America. I, I played his games. I actually don't know much about the guy, which I think is a better way to go. I've deliberately just played the video games. Okay. Well, uh, since we're going to talk about them, I don't see any reason to extend this preamble longer than your umming and aahing has done with you Hugh Granting over there. Uh... <laughs> don't take me, Hugh Granted. <laughs> Christ, why do I podcast with you? <laughs> um, But we do have an interview with Mike Joffe that is going to be our segment two, and we're going to get the hell out of here and cut to that and when we come back we will talk about the entire list of games which if you want to play along stop the podcast now and go play them the list will be on abnormalmapping.com uh and uh come back the games only take a couple hours but we're gonna talk about them freely so go do that come listen to the interview and then come listen to us dissect everything we'll probably do a worse job than mike does of it And we're here today with Mike Joffe. Say hello, Mike. Hello. Uh, you uh, run the blog uh, Video Games of the Oppressed, 
and mm-hmm. uh, make games. Uh, you have a Patreon uh, that we'll link. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, one of the things that uh, we always wanted to do as part of this gameography is talk to uh, like game creators about their process. And I think your process in particular is really interesting. You didn't really start out wanting to be a game maker initially, right? Like you went to school for something totally unrelated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've always sort of been interested in games and like, you know, like I've always had, like I think most people who have ever played games, that kind of idea, like, Oh, I'm going to create the, you know, the biggest JRPG ever when I get a million hours of free time and never have to work. And, it's going to be amazing, and, and you know, without actually ever actually believing that or caring about it. Um, I, I went to school originally for um, uh, comics and animation and film, uh, and then sort of branched out into um, sort of lar- larger art history and narrative art history in particular, uh, and then ended up uh, going to grad school for um, sort of environmental art and ecology and science communication. Why uh, ecology, if you don't mind me asking? Um I've always really been interested in um, how things connect and how things relate to each other, uh, and especially uh, on, like, the nature side of things. And as as a kid, um, sort of everyone always said, like, you have to choose one or the other. It's art or science, never both. And, um, like, I think too many of us, I didn't realize that was completely incorrect until way, way too late. <laughs> um, so when it came time to, to start thinking about grad school, I was really interested in filling in those gaps and, and really getting a chance to um, get some more hard science backing and find out ways to use that in art. Um, one of the things that I think is a hallmark of your games is that they are all, like most, probably all of them are, uh, they have an activistic element to them where you're trying to instill some sort of idea about a real world thing and uh, give people a bigger perspective, but they are also this marriage of like absurdist comedy in a lot of them. It's very like homespun, uh, very like, uh, relatable. And I think that marriage of the two is a thing you don't even see a lot in games. Like you can have your cake and eat it too, in terms of being an educational thing and an entertaining thing. Yeah. I, I think that like, because in some ways, like the, there's definitely games I've made that didn't necessarily have like a, a very specific activist goal going in. But I think part of it is just, um, I've always been really interested in, in non-didactic education and, and like, you know, I, different ways of teaching, different ways of learning. And I think so when I go in with like an idea or, or some position I want to be pushing, I, I don't want to just sort of like, be like, here it is. Bam. Um, I want to more just create a environment where thinking about it is possible. And so I think that even when I'm not going in there with a very specific goal, um, I'm still thinking about like, okay, how can I create space within these games for people to to think and play with all kinds of different ideas? But education is a thing that we don't really even see explored in a lot of game systems. Yeah, not enough, and it's it's sort of sad because you know there were so many growing up, like this amazing educational games. Like, I mean, all the Maxis Sim games were a huge inspiration on me, um, and things like Sim Life where. Um, you know, by by a lot of standards today, we'd probably consider like a non-game because there's no specific goal, there's no puzzles. It's just giving you space and tools to play with things, and then just start thinking about genetics, ecology, and things like that. Um, something I thought about 
your games in their education aspect was the humor was like deliberately part of that like the joke was just was so often that this like animal or culture or whatever is very different to our own perspective but we're approaching it and anthropomorphizing it onto our own perspective and the both the humor and the education are the same thing of this is the thing that is very different and learning that is interesting and i really like that about like your games and like how do you go about finding the right things to be the mix of interesting and funny at the same time in the same way Mm -hmm. yeah um well thanks um i mean i always sort of start with with the idea or or the or the fact of the story first um Mm -hmm. and then sort of think about what kind of game what kind of play fits that um like uh when i was when I, one of the games I did um, was a very short uh, adventure game about being a, a I'm gonna I'm gonna bangle the pronunciation of this animal, but uh, the Babarusa pig, yes, or Baribusa, one of the one of those two. The art placement always confusing on that. But um, I was really interested learning about how that animal deliberately poisons itself because um, the fruit it eats is, is packed with cyanide, and it, it has a way of, of treating this. It's not immune to it at all. Like they, they will die from eating it unless they get the antidote, which is found in these clay deposits in their environment. And so I didn't sort of, I didn't go in thinking like, oh, I'm going to make a game about a funny animal or a funny eating story. It was more, I you know, found this sort of fact, kept reading more about the animal and the, and the environment, was found it really interesting, and then sort of built the, um, the humor in the game around that. But a game like that uh, is similar to a game like the uh, the Akasha Tree uh, Twine game that you made, also in that, mm-hmm. like at first, it's a very straightforward. Here is the lesson you're going to learn, and then it kind of spins off after that into something way more heady and way more improvisational. Mm-hmm. And is there a difference between how you approach a game like that and something like Handsomest Echidna, which is very clearly just a straight entertainment educational thing? Um, yeah, I think Acacia Tree, I mean, that, that's the, the first Twine game I ever finished. Uh, it was the second Twine game I ever started. But, um, technically, uh, I started F to Newt when I, that's the very first thing I ever worked on a Twine, um, even though it came out like a year later. Um, but a, a Dream Acacia Tree was really the first project I sat down with like an actual plan in Twine to, to build. Uh, and so there was a lot of sort of playing around with, with, with ideas and like going through Anthropies, um, tutorials and like like oh I can do this in Twine and then thinking about like okay so if I can do this what would be something I could you do this for that would relate to a tree uh, or not and then how could I take something that doesn't relate to a tree and then somehow tie it in so there is a lot more of an improvisational feel to that game as a result of that um, and the handsomest echidna um, it's handsomest echidna started life as a kids book um, and uh, that ended up, ended up falling through and. I just like the story and script enough where I sort of kept it and um, sort of reappropriated it for a, sort of like a, like a children's hit book game kind of thing. Okay. So, so you've only really been making games for uh, almost a little uh, about two years, year and a half, right? Yeah, yeah, about two years. And you've used a ton of the various tools that are available for someone with, like, not a ton of programming knowledge. How have you found 
jumping from tool to tool and experimenting in so many different forms in such a short time? Uh, it, it can get confusing sometimes. Um, I think I'm I'm definitely lucky to be in a, in a time when there's so many available. And um, like I mean, my my background in programming is basically non-existent. Like I, I took, um, like the only real training I have is when I was in an elementary school. I took um, uh, Q basic classes as part of the the curriculums, um, and that's pretty much been it uh, since elementary school till now. Um, but I think that like the fact that we have programs like Twine and uh, and Construct Two, which and, and Renpy, which have such a wide range of um, customization and, and ways to play around with things. And then even more rigid systems like RPG Maker still have ways for you to sort of like play with the, 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 the basic mold, um, which is, to me, the most interesting thing about those tools. I mean, even uh, your RPG Maker games like... Uh... Mother She Kill Me, Father He Ate Me is something that feels entirely outside the structure of an RPG. Like, mm-hmm. entirely. It is such a place of play. And I, I think that seems to be a through line. Like, a pr- improvisational play definitely seems to be a thing that influences a lot of your games. Well, I definitely... Uh, yeah, I would agree. I have an improv theater background. Um, I've been I've done improv for, for years in, in a bunch of different places. Um I was part of a of an improv troupe in, in the Czech Republic that was. Uh, I started out as a, a sort of a bilingual troupe, but um, basically became sort of like an English language uh, troupe. I was there for. I was active for about a about a year and a half or so, and I think that um, it eventually just like the way sort of any kind of theater group and any kind of very transitory, you know, uh, everyone moving in and out environment like um the expat community of Prague, um it's now gone through like four uh complete sea changes and and, and cast changes since I've left. But um yeah so I, I definitely take a lot of inspiration from from improv and improv theater and, and the training and that. Do you find the kind of elaborative learning and play that is in improv a thing that's easy to replicate in games? Games seem so systemized to the point where that doesn't seem like a logical marriage of two uh, like ethoses. Yeah, I think it, it, in some ways it's hard. Um, I think the way I bring it in is, is sort of I, I think about like the game sort of being a collaboration between me and the unseen player. Um, like it's something that doesn't exist until someone else is, is playing it. Um, uh, and, and, and even like more traditional games, some of my favorite moments playing games are the moments where I think like I like I found some weird little bug or glitch or, or something that I'm not supposed to be able to do, and then I realize that the, the the developers have thought of that and planned around it, and and I realize it's sort of like this sort of weird conversation I've been having with this unseen artist, separated by miles or years. Um, my fa- the most famous example I can think of is, is just the the second level of, of the original Super Mario Brothers, that moment when you're playing as a kid and you and you realize, oh, I can jump on top of the bricks in this level. I'm going to run off into oblivion. And then you realize, no, they expected me to try that. There's a war zone. And it's this whole little kind of beautiful moment where you realize that they've been thinking about what you could do in their space. But... 
Mm, I I was just about to say a cynical thing. I'm going to not even bring that up. <laughs> I, I realized that in a modern game, it would just give you a joke and an achievement, and that would be the end of it. <laughs> and not systemize, like, oh, the whole history of Mario, like, falling behind the level in Mario 3 and, like, the sub-doors mm-hmm. in 2 all seem to stem out of, oh, this is a system people played with and found these ways to work around it. Um, can I say something? Yeah, no. Because I, I feel like F to Newt is probably the the most improvisational game that you've done so far. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, like, all about the... Because what's interesting about it is that in most games, or in, especially in, you know, spatial... Um, games of exploration where you have a character and you move uh, you cannot decide what is going to be on the other side of the door it is programmed for you uh, but mm-hmm. the way Afternoon is written is you're choosing um, just uh, character actions but your char- what your character is like basically what you, your assumption will always be true so mm-hmm. if you walk over to the road because you think something um Walk over the road, and this isn't actually in the game. If you like, go over to a place because you think someone's at that place, they will be at that place. But if you had to pick up the phone, they would have been on the phone. And it, the universe spools out in so many different directions, uh, which is so antithetical to the main way of uh, thinking about systemized games, which is the universe is rigid and you may interact with it and discover it. And I really like the fact that, that that's a you take a very different approach to that idea. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I, don't I didn't have a question, but. Uh, I can elaborate on that because I think it's cool. Yeah, and and it, it, that comes out of the the whole improv tradition yeah. of yes and, where mm-hmm. if, if you're working with a, with a partner, um, no matter what they say, you agree with it. Like if they're like, "We're going to the beach," you say yes, and I'm bringing an umbrella, or <laughs> yes, and um, you know you wouldn't say it like that because it's you know, yeah. kind of lame. But like this, it's the basic idea. Because if if someone says, oh, "Let's go to the beach," and your response is no. <laughs> The scene, the scene just ends. There's nowhere to go. We're like, you know, if someone comes in, it's like, um, you know, you know, mom, I'm really worried about, you know, some, about about my my kid and your grandson. And then your partner just goes, No, I'm not your mom. What? No, I'm I'm neighbor. We're in a, we're in a zoo. And it's like, there's no scene anymore because it comes a conflict between two people who aren't actually communicating at all and the audience just has no connection and is bored. And, um, and so I was really interested in, in applying that idea of yes and where in this, in the same way I was talking about earlier, where it's all about a conversation between me and the unseen player where I sort of, it, it I mean, it's still a rigid system because yeah. there's still limits to what I can guess, but it's sort of, it's the illusion of there being no system in some ways. I think it takes away the idea of a fail state. There are just various states, mm-hmm. and your idea is to explore different states through the system rather than find the correct way to go through it. And I like that. Because I think fail- thinking about fail states in this really, really necessary way, because some people put that in the definition of what a game is, I think that's really close-minded. Yeah, and I think it's it's so built into the, what we think about games, too. Like Like any classic game that use some sort of classic, well-known genre or trope that play with the idea of a failed state just instantly became like, oh my god, brilliant. Like, um, just little things like like the, the there was a PlayStation game called Herc's Adventure. Um, it was sort of this overhead kind of very action-y um, game about Greek mythology, but every time you died, you'd, the game wouldn't end, you'd just go to Hades, and then you'd just fight your way back to the surface and then take resume the game. So there's no real way to completely lose um and it was just such a small little thing that still 
you know, kept all the same conventions of that kind of action um, game, but it just by a little tweak made it a million yeah. times more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who's made a Twine game or two, but they're very narrative focused, I think even more common outside of the big dichotomy of completely open or punishing fail states. It's just the idea of whatever you do has to be in service of the author's intended goal. Like Jackson talked about, you go across the street and someone's there, or you talk on the phone and someone's there, but F to nude is different in that you might go across the street and everyone's animals, or you might answer the phone and like everyone's in space and I, going into <laughs> space is not your game, but like just a, like an example of the kind of weirdness that abounds. It's easy in a game to make choice like a really illusory thing because the author wants their story to be told. And so the choices Mm -hmm. end up wrapping back around. Like in most narrative twine games, you find that all of your choices eventually coalesce back to the same point. Also, I feel like in so many games, choice is essentially about cost. And you choose between making something easier or harder or giving up something else. Like That's what moral choice systems essentially try to be. And this my, different things. My my question, I guess, is to give every choice valid weight, even when the choices aren't like they don't coalesce into a main major narrative. I feel like requires a certain uh, egoless death of the author viewpoint when you come into creating a game. Is that a way that you approach it? Where like I have uh, the thing I want to say is not like it's more important for the player to engage than for me to say a thing. I think, um, in some ways, I think that's part of like part of what I, I go into thinking. But I think more than that, like, well, like one of the things I do on my blog a lot is 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 take games and just completely ignore what they're supposed to be about and just talk about whatever they make me think about. Um, and that's very much like a death the author kind of thing. And it, and I sort of feel like it, it cuts both ways. Like if I'm going to be taking, you know, some some ridiculous old Super Nintendo game and just turning it into whatever I want it to be about, I need to accept that anyone can do that with anything I make as well. I mean, that's just sort of, that's just how, that's what our art is. It's just people interpreting things in their own way. And, and the discussion between like, how does that connect to, how does it differentiate from the author's intentions can be interesting, but isn't necessarily as important as what your experience is at that moment. Um, and I, I like for F to new specifically, I didn't go in thinking like, you know, um, cause I, I think, Definitely, as, as you said, like it has very strong um, narrative themes. Like every every choice a player makes is valid, but they're still going to be going down stories that I've set out and constructed. Um, in that case, what I was really thinking about, and it, it sort of ties in, Epsilon was a very very improv heavy inspirational game. Um, I, I took a lot of inspiration from the the improv tradition of the Herald, um, which is a, a way of creating scenes. And and um, one of the one of the games you can play. Uh, as a troop in order to create ideas for Harold is it's incredibly simple. You sort of go around in a circle and one person says a word like Christmas. And then the next person says the first word that, that makes them think of like, Oh, Santa or cookies. Um, and then everyone just keeps going around and lets the idea build and build and build. And the, the goal is to get, to get as far away from the original idea as possible. Um, and just to, to, and same with the whole yes and thing. Like if, if someone says Christmas, the other person says, you know, fire truck, that's valid. Um, but it is just as, as a group to get as far away from it as possible, but then without actually saying, deciding to, or, or, or coming up with a plan to 
slowly bring it back to the original idea so that if you start with Christmas, you end with Christmas. And so with that's the new I wanted every the, the decisions you make at the beginning of the game are some of the biggest in terms of how they change the universe. And I want it to be sort of like the further the more choices you make and the further you go along, the more it sort of solidifies into one or more different possible stories. Yeah. So that you will eventually get to a consistent ending. Um and that's why sort of like the the hugest changes are at the beginning where like it could be a world where everyone's an animal or it could be a world where um you know there's huge changes, you know, shaking the planet, or it can be a world where everything's completely normal and mundane, or it could be you know, those are where the, the biggest sort of changes in the universe happen. Um, as someone who makes games that are activistic, though, I feel like there uh, there's a certain like lack of self in creating a game, especially about animals, when the, it is so much about explaining to people the difference that animals are not like you can anthropomorphize them to a point, but I feel like your games are very clear about that is a thing that we do as humans that's like for us and not for the animal's sake. Even in your cartoony animal games, and I think that relates heavily to like a like not quite death of the author, but the author stepping aside and letting the subject become the focus and not like authorial intent. Yeah, um, I think a, like a good example of some of like the anthropomorphic stuff is is with Benthic Love, um, which is the first game I made, um, where you have the sort of anthropomorphizing this idea of the anglerfish and and um, like really giving a human perspective onto the idea of you know melting away into just a pair of testes attached to whatever you bite into, um, and I think part of that is is like as you said like that's something that we do we can't help but anthropomorphize everything we look at we're an incredibly similar species that way we look at an outlet and we see a face we look at cars and we see faces we look at everything and we will find some way of inserting us into it and because that's unavoidable. Um, it's sort of if if I had sort of set out and created like a very realistic anglerfish simulation, it wouldn't have been as compelling. It wouldn't have been as interesting, and it would have would have been harder for people to sort of feel any connection to this really interesting life cycle they have. And so, by sort of accepting that people are going to naturally anthropomorphize and think about a very unhuman way of looking at the world in human terms. Um, I sort of try to create space then where people could see like see examples of that, but also have enough freedom to say, yes, this applies to me, or no, this doesn't apply to me, or and then ask themselves, okay, so why does this apply to me? Why doesn't this apply to me? I, I just want to say to Matt that I highly disagree with like the fact that the games are about large improvisational possibility spaces implies that they're more like they have less authorial intent. Mm. Like the games are d- designed deliberately to be uh, these open things that can engage with um, the other person, like you know, this cooperative way. So, like to me, uh, subverting authorial intent, especially within games, is like when the game is rigid and you are trying to do something that is deliberately not intended. Where when the game is designed to include and um, take advantage of whatever the player wants to put in and spit out some uh, still valid response. I I don't know. I feel like that's not that's not a death of any author and that's part of it. 
Like I said, I don't want to equate it to death of the author. Yeah. Um, I guess this leads to my larger point, which is kind of the main question. The thing I really wanted to ask you about to get you on Mike is I feel like a lot of like small game makers make games that are very personal stories. And one of the things I really admire about your games is I know that they come out of who you are and what you're about, but so they feel so universalist and you're that you're not telling a thing about your life and a thing about the past, like your past uh, explicitly. And it's a thing that I really admire, especially like it activism in games often takes the form of telling someone's story, like as like a marginalized voice. And I'm, I'm going to use gone home here as an example, even though I really like that game, like the main writer. And I know that there's like a woman writer on there as well, but is a, is a straight white dude who's writing about a queer narrative. And I know that there are people who take umbrage at that. And I've always appreciated that your games seem to go out of their way to not step on the narratives of other people who can be making games. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how conscious of that you were and how much that influences the kind of stories you tell. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely conscious of, of, you know, not wanting to, you know, step on anyone's toes and not wanting to, to be like, you know, yet another, you know, white guy who's just sort of going in there and, and telling stories when, I mean, cause also like, every single person I've learned from in games has been part of one or more marginalized groups. Like it, you know, games don't really need people like me coming in and telling these stories because they're already there. There are already so many incredibly talented people from every walk of life imaginable, you know, telling their stories and, and doing incredibly interesting work. Um, and I think that to some extent, like there is like in, in other media, especially like, like the fact that like, you know, not 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 the shit on Josh Whedon too much, but like the fact that like he can be like you know the oh, oh he can get this huge praise for being like such a good you know feminist man directing these strong female characters, and it's not that there's nothing wrong with him or, or or what he does necessarily, but it's it's the fact that he can get so much praise for something that women are already doing, and there's something that that happens with pretty much every marginalized group is that you can get a lot of praise for like even something like, like, like another example, like, like I, I love Avatar, the last airbender um, because it's got so many, and, and that's a show that has so many wonderful um, characters of, of tons of different ethnic backgrounds and cultures. It, it's also a show that's primarily made by, by white people. And it, it gets a lot of praise for being very inclusive, very open, having things like that. Um, and it's sort of, in some ways, it feels like it's so much easier for us to to get that kind of praise than it is for the people who are out there living that experience and also making stories about it. Also, and I think that well, that show yeah. specifically walks like a line between exploitative and reverential of a culture because it is like part of that show is aren't martial arts stuff cool? Like that that's where our universe comes out of. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, and and this is the thing too. Like, I I don't even feel like I'm really qualified to mm-hmm. to comment on whether or not it's effective or or, or helpful because yeah. you know I'm not the one. Because I mean, I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's not my culture that it's either praising or appropriating or anything like that. So I feel like, or or in the same way, like the same way, like, I try not to have like, like on my blog, I'm not going to write some big thing about whether or not Bayonetta is, is feminist or not because mm-hmm. that's not for me to say. Like my my experience that has no validity or, or usefulness whatsoever. And there's so many more interesting conversations to be had with the huge myriad of a number of opinions that women have had about this game. And, mm-hmm. 
and that's something I do try to try to think about. Um, I will say, like, the main reason, though, that my games tended to not be as specifically personal by my events is more just, like, kind of more, like, personal cowardice than anything else. Like, because, um, I mean, like, it, it's scary to, to yeah. tell, a, a, like, a, a party something like that in life. And it, it's, it's in some ways, it's easier to, to, to tell a story about, like, science, about some natural event or some animal species or or to use some piece of folklore as as a as a way of exploring or talking about what's going on like you know i i would much rather make a game about you know palm civets and and them eating coffee beans than i would you know make a game about you know my family or something like that even if i was saying the exact same thing and talking about the exact same thing themes in both games and like it's because I've, I've thought about making games about like much more personal experiences, and every time I've sort of gone down that road, I've been very hesitant mm-hmm. about get, finishing it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's less to do with with like authorial desires or intent, and more to do with just what made me feel the most comfortable and what made me feel more or less vulnerable as as a person outside of the artwork. Yeah, like the one game I've made in my like private thing has been one of those like very personal, almost like games as therapy thing, like going through uh, mm-hmm. a thing in my life. And obviously, I'm never going to release it because one, I don't think it's a good game, and two, I like this so specific that even if you're trying to make it universal, I, I mean, I personally don't think that anyone releasing anything has a responsibility to make it universal. I would very much want to work against the idea that something has to be accessible to be good. Some things are just oh, pers- yeah. personal and exist, and that's what they are. But in terms of like putting yourself and out there in that way, it's hard and difficult. And I, I feel like uh, finding a way to express the themes through more universal means can, in some way, be more helpful to like the insecurities that come with a personal game can bring down whatever catharsis that comes from it. Mm-hmm. And even though it's more difficult and a roundabout way and less direct, there's a way to reach that thematic and like uh, philosophical catharsis through uh, other things. And I like exploring those. And I wish I, I wish I could make stuff. One day I will. I'm still young. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and and I think like adding to that too, like like um, like two games I can think of in the last year that I had incredible personal reactions to, where games that were were two games that were very not universal that were very much the author's story yeah um and, and those are uh, uh consensual torture simulation simulator by maricopas and um uh reprogrammed by um by soha yeah soha kareem's um program um and both games tie into sort of similar kind of themes they both deal with bdsm um which is not a part of the world that i'm connected to at all in my own life um which is also kind of interesting so like they're games that are about something that has nothing to do with my own experience, nothing to my own life. And yet while I was playing them, I was still able to like, like they brought up really visceral, real emotions and connections to events that I was struggling with and grappling with. And, and they, it did so because they, they weren't universal at all because they were very much the author saying, here it is, deal with it. Mm-hmm. And me then saying, okay. And being able to, bridge that connection on my own um which isn't always easy as as a, a, a an audience member to do um and that's I, and that's why i sort of admire 
people who are willing to do that and willing to give the audience that kind of opportunity because um, I think there's so much we could be doing as audience members that we generally don't because we sort of we sort of expect to need to be passive or we expect to need to be, you know, sitting still. And sometimes when you're sort of challenged as an audience member to really connect to something or to, to sort of get out of your seat and become a co-artist almost, or, 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 you know, in, in the bully in terms, like a spec actor, um, like that to me is really an important moment, uh, when I'm connected to art. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think your series on your pretty personal reads of Castlevania that you've been putting up recently have been a great example of that. Like that's a game that is almost hilariously general in that let's put all the universal monsters in a castle and shake it and see what falls out. And your read is very much coming from your own place and also your background with art history and stuff and creating these narratives that are very specific in their, like I feel like you you have three pieces and they're all very specific reads that are very different, but they're all very true to you and your view of the world. Well, I, I mean, I absolutely love Symphony of the Night. It's one of my favorite games. And, and, and what's, what's amazing to me is that like at, at the time I'm doing, doing that, like eight other people are doing the exact same thing. I think there's something about Symphony of the Night that just makes it for this like very universally personal. This is something about just, you know, yelling at your dad in this in, in your old home while you watch a bunch of hot monsters and aren't quite sure how to feel about it that just connects people i mean this is something about that game that lets people connect all kinds of of wonderful experiences and ideas to yeah it's the best game ever made <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, that's actually all my questions so, Jackson, if you have nothing else, we'll wrap I this think, up. I think we had a good talk. That was a good good bit of business. Thank you very much, Mike. Is there anything else you yeah, want to say before we uh, kick you out? Um, hey, geez, uh, nothing really has come to mind. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's been fun. Yeah. My, uh, first, my first interview or, or pod, podular cast. And that's oh, fun. really? I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we were your first then. Um. Uh, people should back your Patreon. Is this the time where I get to accuse you of not sending me my drawing? I've actually got I've got um, the your drawing for Handsome Echidna, and that's going to be going out um, this week. So oh, I look forward to that. I, I tease because I backed it just because I really like the work you do. But no, that's what like it's that that's something I'll be I'll be having to talk about. It's sort of like just um 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 another artist who is a patron who I, who I back um, Elizabeth Simmons um. Who has a patron for her, for her her comics um, about about games and about you know the the culture and experience of games? She was saying on Twitter like um, or asking on Twitter, do people ever feel like um, you know that they're they're worried that the stuff they put up on Patreon isn't going to be good enough? Are they going to be letting people down? And that's just like I was just like yes, like <laughs> um, in some ways like the patron feels kind of um, it's, it's sort of this weird almost like limiting feeling where I'm like, well, I don't know if I should do this because I'm not sure if I can, you know, monetize it now. And, and then it ends up being this whole like weird cycle that way too many of us fall into about art and, and value and things like that. Um, so it is something that I, I I'm going to be trying to push against and be like, okay, now this, you know, do work and, and, you know, share it and people will be interested or not. And so I, I'm going to try to make the Patreon more of a active thing again. Yeah, it, it's the abnormal mapping ethos that the problem is always capitalism. 
Right. Yep. Yeah, no, definitely. I, 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 yeah, I like your Patreon. I'm surprised you don't put your blog post as part of it. I, I don't. You should do that. I've, I've, cons- I've been thinking about doing it, setting it to a monthly thing instead of, and then including the, the blog then as part of it. So it, it's, it's a, uh, you know, Patreon for the blog and the games and the drawing and everything. Then. Yeah, your, your blog posts are really great. I, I suppose, like, even including your write-ups of all of your games, which I, is a thing I desperately wish everyone would do, because it's a great insight into the process of, like, where you came from making this thing. Even when it's just, like, a short blurb. Mm-hmm. Like, that stuff's really appreciated. Uh, it'll be invaluable for when we go and pick apart all your games in the second <laughs> part of this podcast. Yeah. No, they're really good. They're good stuff. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, and uh, good luck with more games. I'm sure uh, there will be many more. Your yeah, latest I, is a cute, adorable thing, for the record. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'll, I can talk briefly about that. It's, it's, a, it's a platformer about creating poetry, where uh, sort of use, using the sort of generic Mario platformer engine to create a vehicle for playing with language and, and, uh, and, and poetry. Yeah, uh, looking yeah. forward to it. So. Thanks. Uh, thanks again for coming on and uh, plug your Twitter, plug your website. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. My Twitter uh, it, it's Jaffiorama, um with a little Twitter at symbol before that, and uh, my blog is uh, uh, videogamesoftheoppressed.wordpress.com. All right, you can play all my games there. All right, uh, thanks again, thanks and uh, that's it. And welcome back to segment three. I think that interview went well, didn't you, Jackson? I think it went really well. We don't remember because we recorded it two weeks ago. But <laughs> it probably went well. I remember our reaction when, when we finished it. Oh, no. We basically did the Skype version of a high five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Professional podcastman over here. Now it's time to get into the nitty gritty of the games. And we might as well just run down the list from uh, oldest to newest. Does that sound good to you? Let's do it. Alright, so first up we have ben- Benthic Love, mm-hmm. which is a Renpy game. It was Mike Joffe's first game. Oh, I guess we should start. Uh, Mike introduced himself, and you already listened, but you can find Mike Joffe once again on Patreon or on Twitter at Joffeorama or at videogamesoftheoppressed.wordpress.com. His list of games is there. Um, there you go. That's your introduction. <laughs> anyway, Benthic Love is a Renpy Ang- he, it's described as an anglerfish dating sim that was made for the pulse-pounding, heart-stopping dating, dating sim jam. And it was his first game. It was about the mating habits of anglerfish, um, which introduces kind of the two or maybe three main thrusts of Mike Joffe games in that it is a anthropology game about teaching you a thing about nature. It is also... Like, taking animals and putting them in human constructs. In this case, like, the game supports queer narratives in a way that is surprising. And it also is sometimes uh, softly funny in a way that I think most of his games are. Yep. How did you find Benthic Love, Jackson? I loved it. I, as a first thing to play, just this delightful look at anglerfishes, but mostly just... Um, Taking this weird natural thing and putting it through a human lens. It's funny. Mm. It's just pretty funny. Yeah. Um... Like the, the first ending I got was, I'm assuming the standard one, where you find a uh, girl anglerfish and hook up with them. 
And what you were gonna I get. actually got the uh the gay ending first. Oh, nice. Yeah, just in like I ran across it the first time and I was like, I'll poke at this and see what happens. And that's what happened. So if you don't know, and like I said, you should go play this, uh Anglerfish uh the Anglerfish people think of with the lantern on its head and like the mouthful of teeth is a they're all female. Male anglerfish are very small and exist mostly as like packets of DNA to kind of exist and they bite onto a female anglerfish and transfer DNA to make babies, but but in doing so they basically like start to be consumed by the body of the female anglerfish. It's really horrifying in a way that only nature can be. But when that happens in the game, it turns into this kind of wistful and sad romantic act. Yeah. So the game casts it in you you want to find a mate because that's your biological purpose in life, but in re- like in reality, you're kind of uh, you know ambivalent about it because it means the loss of yourself. Like it's your death to fulfill your yeah. destiny. And in the one where you find a female thing, you have a long conversation with her, essentially about the ramifications for both of you. Because mm-hmm. she's like, I don't want to end someone else's life yeah. just to continue my own thing. That sounds horrible. And you, yeah. you both come to this place where you agree it's the thing you both want to do, and it's like educating you on the bio, the biology and this interesting fact through these jokes and surprisingly touching look at this thing that doesn't actually match with our cultural expectations because it's you know fish. Yeah, and in the first stunning I got, you meet another male anglerfish, and you're both kind of hesitant and alone and kind of frightened of what might be coming and you end up striking up like a you know like you both come from the same place so there is a relationship that forms very fast and then you can suggest that maybe they should just bite each other and like end this cycle of trying to seek a mate in a normal way right there and just be like oh we like each other so let's just do this thing Mm -hmm. and then you together you kind of just spiral off into the darkness alone or with the other anglerfish and it's like very beautifully tragic and sad it's such a good moment but both endings are great yeah there are five endings um one of them is you just get eaten because Mm -hmm. the ocean is dangerous and full of weird strange (laughs) things like eels and giant squid and whale carcasses because yeah because it's not just a dating sim it's also you fly uh, swim around the ocean and see the things around you and you get Mm -hmm. a sense of your scope within the world and other Mm -hmm. things that exist yep but you could also choose just not to date like or not to mate with anyone the anglerfish which like she ends up kind of respecting your choice and happy for the companionship, even though you know that it's going to mean that you're going to shrivel up and die because you don't really have a purpose besides mating. Yeah. And that one's also great in that it's such a human moment of, no, let's choose not to procreate, but let's have like this time together sharing memories. Because one of the female anglerfish's main concerns is that you're not like you're going to mate and that's going to be good for her. But like. She wants a companion, yeah. not just a thing that latches onto her and disappears. Because she doesn't want you to forget her. She doesn't want this to only exist in her mind, this interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, of all the games, maybe. Most of the... I think this is probably the saddest of all the games. I would agree. <laughs> um, Trying to think. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I would I would say it's the it, saddest it, of all the games. It plays into the... like It makes... The fact that it doesn't match up with our expected cultural narratives, but places them in 
that context and mm-hmm. mind that for both the comedy and tragedy of the thing. Like, if there were people who went through this situation, it would be the saddest thing. Yeah. But this is just normalized yeah. life, which is the thrust of a lot of these games, uh, like all of the anthropology ones anyway, is when you put the experiences of animals through a lens that gives you empathy for them in like a human way, yep. you see how like the variety and like the wonder of this stuff. Like when it's not being full of advocacy, the thing it's actually talking about is, Hey, isn't all of the stuff animals do as a normal part of life. Interesting and incredible. Yeah. In a thousand different ways. It's a really smart way of like education. Mm-hmm. Of, because the games themselves and the tone they're written in take joy in the fact that this is knowledge that you may not have had before. These are interesting facts and they are worth it in and of themselves. And they're not mm-hmm. presented to you in this bland, here is a fact way, here is what anglerfish do. It is, uses its humor and emotion and like cultural clash in order to make you think, oh, the world's a cool place and there are all these things I hadn't thought about. Mm hmm. Um, which leads to the second game we're going to talk about is Dream of an Acacia Tree, which is a, a twine game, uh, that casts you in the role of an acacia tree, uh, that is trying to exist and grow and just be a tree. Uh, you're, you can like take in sunlight and then use the sunlight to grow and you have to survive giraffes and a bun- like lumberjacks showing up out of nowhere and ants and whatnot. And, the thing that I find really remarkable about this, and it'll show up in a later game also, is extending this idea of anthropomorphizing animals to trees and to plants, and how, like, if animals are weird, trees are kind of the most alien, bizarre, like, mind space you could ever inhabit, because the time scale and just the actions that they can take seem so foreign to, like, mammals, or even, like, fish in the case of the last game. It takes so long to get... Because, okay, so the conceit of this game, which you don't really realise when you're playing it, is that there's the game, and then there's like another game at the end of the game when you get to level two. Yes. But... Because the the first game, the first part is meant to be like uh, educational in that you learn how like a tree grows, but you also learn what the predators are, but you learn your defences, like you have thorns, uh, but you... Or you can... uh, You can create... Uh, create tannins, which are like poisonous to animals, but giraffes are immune to tannins because they're just, they just do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you learn like the very, the way various predators, I guess not predators, the way various herbivores just kind of avoid the things you're trying to do in like that biological arms race that like all of nature is when you're not humans and just shooting and killing everything to eat it. Yeah. Um, but then you get to, part two or level two and the educational aspect kind of disappears as suddenly a colony, the colony of ants that kind of just lived on you and was helpful starts speaking to you (laughs) and it unlocks the idea of an economy where you can like raise the ant army up by decreeing that it's like a holiday or like telling them to go make more babies. And then they have research trees to give you new, like augments you onto have, your tree. You have to, together, you have to raise the ant taxes in order to oh, find right. the ant, ant science. Yes, and then with the ant science, you can get solar panels and like a growth engine. But then, in response, the assaults become weirder, like junk, drunk giraffes and robotic giraffes and a 
traditional lumberjack that couldn't possibly exist in Africa. Yeah. So that's, you have to logic him out of existence. That's how you beat it. Yeah. Like what's a what's a what's a like flannel wearing lumberjack doing here? And he just poofs out of existence. Yep. Oh, what a great, what a great silly thing. And then it puts the like I like the game mechanics of because the main game kind of gives you like being a tree in the framework of kind of an economy where you have to manage your energy resources versus your expansion. But then level two kind of blows that out in a ridiculous way in that. Now that you have these ants and you can grow even faster, suddenly you become like, as you grow, you can fill up, you start filling up like the entire environment and then the entire country and then the entire continent and talks about your roots, like reaching across the ocean as you just grow to this absurd size. Yeah. And just the way that it elaborates on the idea of this economy run amok if you become like quote unquote good at gaming the system of living, what that would mean in like a traditional game form, I think is part of what is so great about it. Mm -hmm. Cause there's no natural trick of, Hey, you're just a tree. So of course it ends with you just being a tree and you survive. Yay. No, it's let's take over the entire world with our treeness. <laughs> it's, it's the silliest thing, but it's great. Uh, I, I, I like the fact that although it almost entirely abandons its educational, like <laughs> roots, um, and didn't even yeah sorry uh, at the start of that game the way it is essentially about you working with other parts of nature in order to create an environment that is cohabitable and prosperous for both Be mm -hmm. because the first part of the game is incredibly isolating and boring because you do the thing you grow you do the you defend the thing you grow and it very accurately portrays the monotony of being a tree and then you unlock this other level and it becomes about being a part um of a different system that you mm. interact with and can all uh, in charge of in many ways but it is not just you and you have more things to think about and mm -hmm. that shift is great and i like what it implies about the way nature kind of progresses and what's important about nature yeah that i mean there will be more of that in games to come yes but this is maybe the most elegant version of that system mm -hmm. actually yeah that appeared in there but yeah that it's a game i put a kind of an embarrassing amount of time into because i just liked its loop of hack the robo giraffe um, and grow bigger i have an army of robo giraffes guarding me now yep because <laughs> why not that's what robo giraffes are for they're for guarding bidding. exactly uh the next game is maybe the least systems driven game of all of them which is the handsomest echidna which was a twine game but has since been expanded into I think it's in Construct 2, but I'm not actually sure. Uh, a more traditional, like, Flash game, HTML5 game version. Um, and then the thing, uh, Mike mentioned in, in the interview, but it started as a, like, a concept for a children's book, because he's done, like, educational, like, children's narrative before. And Hanster's Echidna is the story, uh, of, this one echidna who goes about his day and he's very proud of his quills and he uses the said quills to like he comes across people who need pointy objects to complete tasks and he's willing to give them the quills and uh you know it's just a kid story of hey help all these people and then they'll help you at the end and everyone loves each other 
Uh, but it also introduces a variety of endangered species in its narrative because everyone who needs help is some animal I had never heard of before because I am not a person who knows anything about animals. And you learn a bit about them and the echidna goes about his way. Uh, looks nothing like Knuckles, for the record. Very disappointed that he's not <laughs> red and hulking like Knuckles is these days. Knuckles is not the handsomest echidna. No. <laughs> he's also not very spiny. He's more dreadlocky. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I feel like there's not a whole lot to say in terms of game structure about Enhancements Echidna, but it, it is really charming. It's the most charming thing. I, yep. l- learning that it was a children's book was like, of course it was, because it's totally that. It's uh, yeah. these tiny situations that build up to this ending, and everything is great and the best. Yeah. As like a purely educational like children's narrative, it is a delight and it makes me like feel kind of guilty that I don't engage with it. Like I don't really know anything about like what children's books do like as an adult. Like I, I feel like I barely read children's books as a child Um, and I don't know anything about them now, (laughs) but it's like, it's a total, like there's like a skill in making a narrative that is educational, but entertaining for a small child. Yeah. Like it has to be just the right kind of in, like interesting without being too going too far and giving you a certain sense of like play without losing like the part where it's telling you stuff and making you learn things. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, I don't really have the framework to say if you know Hanson's Echidna is like great at that, but I I was fully delighted. Yeah, I don't know what happens in the Twine game if you decide to be a dick to everyone. You're just sad, and you well you have all your quills, but you're alone. Okay. That's maybe a better thematic representation of what the game goes on with. You give up your quills and everyone loves you. But you keeping the quills and you're alone. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, it's a a story about how these animals work, but it's also just a story about, hey, you should share because sharing pays you back double, basically. Like, not only do you, like, other people will share with you, but then you have new friends and that's good. Yeah. It's saying, don't, yeah, be nice. Share, be cool, kids' book stuff. Yeah. It also has very want. cute art. It uh, does. Yeah, the idea that like you can just make all of your own art for your games is a thing that I like. I think Mike was maybe the first game maker I'd played a lot of their games where I felt like, oh, that that's a thing you could just do is just make all of your stuff for your own games. Yeah. Um. So what's next? Let's look at our list. Oh, Mother, Mother She, she killed, killed Me, Father He Ate Me. Oh. You want to set this one up, Jackson? Mother She Killed Me, Father He Ate Me is an adaptation of a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale? Is that it? Yes. yes. The Juniper Tree. The Juniper Tree. And it's made an RPG maker. So it's uh, the first game was Rempy and the next two were Twine. And then this was RPG maker. So it's the first game we have like direct control of a character. Yes. And... What it is, is the story is you're the son, and you're in a family who are struggling, and they can't get by, so your mother decides to kill you and feed you to the rest of the family, to solve two problems at once. Do you... This is, like, a totally irrelevant question. Do you get to pick the gender of the player character? No. Okay, (laughs) because... This is just telling of who we are. I assumed you were playing as a young girl. 
and you just said boy, and I was very confused. Well, I, because the, the what it was, it was the once there was a sister, I was like, oh, okay, so it's... Um, See, in my head, it was just two my, sisters. I think it's just, I assume that the actual avatar in the few seconds that you see it is pretty androgynous, and it was just who we are that filled in the blank there. Probably. Yeah, I, don't, I actually don't think it says. Okay. I think it's deliberately... Uh, because yeah, I could have sworn that the main character was female, but I remember I, I thought just they said I'm I'm probably projecting. That's just what I assumed. Okay, the I'm looking at the summary and it says child. Yeah, so I'm not helpful. Assuming that's on purpose. Yes, um, but when your character is killed and fed mm-hmm. to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, their spirit essentially wakes up in a bird, mm-hmm. and the start of the game when you're the the child, you are constrained by the path and you can't go many places or do many things apart from get killed. But once you turn into a bird, you are free to fly over the world map and all over town in this really beautiful way. That's uh, the most commentary on games here is probably within this one because. You know, as soon as you change from being constrained to the paths of an RPG, suddenly the whole world is at your um, bidding to just be explored, and mm-hmm. there is no pressure on exploration. It's just a thing to be done to do it, mm-hmm. rather than navigating as challenge. Yeah, and like the game continues as you get items from characters in the town by singing a song. And yes. you can bring them back to your family, and the choice is who do you give the items to? You because you are basically encouraging events to occur. You don't make direct choices, but you can give. You get a knife. Who do you give the knife to? For example, it's stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, basically, I gave almost every like good item to my sister. Same. Well, why wouldn't you? She was the one who was being helpful and out there for me. Which encouraged her to basically, like, run away. Yep. No, yeah. She got out. Yep. Which is great. I think I gave, like, when I got, like, candy or whatnot, I gave it to the mother to, like, just, like, put her off. Like, food went to her, basically, so Mm -hmm. she wouldn't cook another child. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Mike brought up the idea of a lot of his games are built on the improv idea of yes ending. And this is, like, the first big example of that. In his work of, like, whatever you want to do, the game will reinforce mm-hmm. by poking back at it. Like, even, like, once you turn into bird, you can literally just fly out of the story framework and it gives you an ending. Because that's, I tried once, I'm like, what if I just don't sing to anyone and just fly out? And you totally can do that. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, you, you're free and you flew away and everyone can go back to their lives without you. And you're, that's the end. And it's a big rejection of the idea of good and bad endings. Yeah. Because... The moral imperative has already happened. Like, this is a bad situation. It is just yours to mess around with in as you choose. And But in general, and especially with, like, F to Newt or something, the idea is that whatever ending you get, you should be able to feel that is the correct ending for what you did. For sure. Because I've played games of multiple choice uh, where, like, thematically, you can tell this ending doesn't really line up. Um... This game, more than Eftenute to me, though, has the problem where I feel like the it's so open that I feel overwhelmed by the possibility of what I might could be doing but chose not to. Like, even, like, 
what if I gave like one item to the like another character like would things unfold in a radically different way and like the idea of how many permutations there could be that I don't know how to engage with like just sets me off like it kind of puts me on edge sometimes yes. uh, F to Newt is more manageable in that it's twine and twine to me is more understandable and its pathways are easily explored like you can just click the links in like a very like logical oh here's I went this path now let's go this path but we deviate on the last fork until you do all of the paths or whatever if you want to see everything um, but this game to me feels like there's probably a lot there that I just missed and don't even know how to like engage with. I think that's part of the point because you're a bird who isn't alive anymore, essentially. So you can't do anything. You can only sure. try your best to encourage a thing to happen and see what the fallout is. Because the part of the theme of this story is that the bird can't explain their actions. They yeah. must speak through what they do. So. Of course they can't influence the exact right thing to happen or they could have gone slightly differently because that's just the reality of the character. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. My reaction is to feel stressed about it. I mean, that's <laughs> not an incorrect reaction. We both get a bit of that whenever a game opens up in that way. Yep. But uh, that I just want to point out that this game, I feel like, achieves... like. In the way that I think Yes Ending can often feel very, like, freeing, this this game to me almost feels, like, paralyzing in its openness. In a way that I don't think F to Newt does when we get there. No, I don't. They're very different games in how they approach that Yes End concept. Yeah. Um, But the next game uh, is in Return to Twine. It is Barabusa Pig Game. Or Bobby Rusa, sorry. Um, Which uh, we talked about briefly in the interview, but serves as this extreme example of an animal that just does something wild as its normal course of life in that the fruit it has to eat is filled with cyanide and then it has to like eat clay to neutralize the cyanide. But also just throw it in there. It has teeth that grow so high out of its head that if it doesn't like shave them down, it will pierce its own brain and kill it. Yeah. Because animals are weird. Oh, animals, uh Nature. Ugh. Um Similar to Dream of an Akasha Tree, this game has the like perfect dichotomy of here is an interesting bit of uh like ecological factoids and stuff, but then it also has once you're done with that, you can basically kind of just poke around and, like, you can talk to the other pigs and get strange responses that the game, clearly, the narrator's like, no, this is not what a pig would say, but you're talking to a pig, so what did you want? Um, and it all kind of spirals into, like, a fourth wall-breaking announcement of his Patreon, mm-hmm. which is a delight in that uh, this kind of pushback from a narrator is a thing that I think starts trickling into later games also. Yeah. Of... Games is a dialogue between the player and the game maker. Because it's also deliberately um, like the first game in which you're exploring this natural event or uh, system through the voice of whatever, like Twine or the Rempy stuff, but usually it highlights those differences in a humorous and funny way, whereas this guy is just, yeah, here's nature, what do you want? What do you expect? Here's a fucking pig. 
Yep. And it uses, Wait. it uses that voice to spiral into talking about, uh, here's my thing, it's my Patreon. I don't know if anyone's paying attention and talk about his anxieties about putting it up in a really honest and nice way. But the way it frames, <laughs> um, looking at this different part of nature, this different animal, when the narrator is just, could not give a fuck about how you deal with it and you're pushing back against them all the time is this really interesting analysis of things are only matter and are only interesting if we choose for them to be. Hmm, yeah. And our anxieties about our real life will stop anything else being interesting because that's just what happens. When we can't think about them, they just become things that aren't to be dealt with right now. Yep. There's also the option, which I think is hilarious just from a game design standpoint of you cheering up the game creator slash narrator. Yes. When they, they're like, Oh, I'm feeling kind of anxious. I, I don't know. You could just be comforting to them. I was, which yeah, of course, but you know, like in an inadvertent way, or maybe it's like on purpose. I, I, Mike doesn't seem quite as uh, cynical about that as to like create empathy before they ask for money. I think it's like, Oh, here we go. I'm kind of sad. Oh, cheer up. Don't worry about it. Okay, well, maybe I have this Patreon. Throw me a couple bucks. I don't think it was cynical. I think it's No, deliberately... but the juxtaposition makes me laugh. I think it's delightful. Mm-hmm. I think it was deliberate, but I don't think in a cynical way. Yeah. I think it goes through uh, the reasons for putting up Patreon, for why you'd want to be supported for the stuff you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Subscribe say, uh... You should subscribe and rate us on iTunes, by the way. Yeah. Many of you already told me that you listen after my plea, uh, I guess two episodes now at this point. But, uh, you know, I'm not seeing any reviews. I'm not seeing any reviews. I only have 12 subscribers to the YouTube channel. I put up Let's Plays. Jackson's putting up Let's Plays now. Come on, we got him making videos. What do you want? <laughs> Good plugs on that. So, Pet Lore Simulator. Um, this is the first game I played of Mike Joffe's and he convinced me to play all of his games in short succession. This was months ago before I even brought up the idea of doing this because Mike Joffe was on our list from the beginning. What are you singing? The Lara song. Oh, right. Of course you are. <laughs> what do you expect? We'll have to get that and put it in the in this podcast somewhere. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um. So Pet Laura Simulator is maybe the most advocacy game on this list in that it is about the idea of people get these slow lorises which are these uh tree dwelling creatures and they think they're super cute because they see videos of people who have them on youtube and then they buy them and they're wild animals and potentially super dangerous in that they're poisonous in a lot of weird ways um and the animals being you know uh exotic endangered tree-dwelling prey animals can't handle being transported and handled in the way that humans do and so often die or are just stressed to the point where they get sick and die and just this awful game about human animal ownership and but you you finish first oh just through the lens of like kind of this cute pet simulator mm-hmm. like it's like a tamagotchi where actually the tamagotchi came from a puppy mill <laughs> like the way that it unfolds and is like just very clearly scolding the player for even like engaging with its cuteness, but not denying that these animals are cute. Like the way that it contains the idea of yes, these animals are cute, but no, that does not give you the right to own them. Yeah. Is 
I think the most scathing, but also probably like the best version of like ecological advocacy in in any game I've ever seen. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I really like this game a lot. Me too, and it achieves that through. Like, it starts with a very similar kind of opening to every of uh, the other Twine games, and that here's a thing, and you have really random choices, and you can see at poker them which direction they go in. But instead of being yes and, everyone is just no. Whatever you do, yeah, because everything mine. you do, like you cannot save the Loris. No, and if something even worse will probably happen. You could die. Everything just everything is a disaster every time. And through being a complete outright rejection of the yes and improvisation of all the other games, and just this no, you are you cannot have the agency you want to have. Your agency is limited. You can make choices, but you can't actually affect the outcome. It becomes the most authored and most uh, like thematically pointed game. Yeah, because like you say, it's very pointed. It's making an argument and stating it plainly through its mechanics. But I mean, by making such a closed system, like it points out that the only way to like not be harmful is to not engage. Like the idea of the pet loris simulator is you already say, "Hey, I would like to take care of a loris." Like by engaging in that system, whether through player or the people who do this in real life, you are making the wrong choice that can't be won. Yeah. And so, it, like, the way it represents, like, awful human choice in, like, a game system is actually really good and way better than just, like, waggling your finger at somebody for doing something bad in a game. Mm-hmm. Plus five to par- uh, Renegade. Yeah, you can't complete it but be bad because the game says also you are bad. Yeah. Which is... When when your goal is to, like, own a Loris, it just is going to end in tears and probably somebody's death. Something's death. Mm-hmm. Which, that... To be a bit more general rather than sticking to uh represents the idea of like how narratives comment on morality and how game systems don't usually do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you're bad in a, in a narrative, either you will be punished or you will not be punished and your not punishment is a greater critique of the system that hasn't punished you. Mm-hmm. Um, but within normal systems like that you can do whatever you want but you'll be punished by another thing of like it's kind of an outside system so for this narrative act they set up a different system in order to judge your morality and that's why they always feel dishonest anyway oh. that's really all i have. i don't want to derail us too much but i wanted to say that mm-hmm. so in kind of the opposite end of uh like whether or not a game supports you winning or losing we have Faster Than a Speeding Bullet as the next game, which is a game that you cannot lose in that it is a Superman simulator, basically, but it is also the... God, it, it's probably close to a year now ago. Someone asked us what we thought a good Superman game would be, and we basically described Faster Than a Speeding Bullet. <laughs> Pretty much exactly. We des- we described something that would probably be more formalistically like Diner Dash, but in the sense of you can do everything, but you can't do enough to actually save all the things you want to do, Fast and the Speeding Bullet is that. Because there is always the outside factor that is bigger than you. Uh, your, yep. your enemy in this game is not, you know, anything, any villain, because they can't stop you. Your enemy is just time, which yeah. resonates with us well. <laughs> Because it starts with, hey, you have 30 seconds till the villain blows up the city, and you can go, like, stop them, but every second you take to do that, like, a, like other things unfold that you can choose to stop or not, and what you choose to take on and don't take on will affect your ability. Like, you can't 
stop every bad thing from happening, even if you have all of the power, mm-hmm. because the universe is just not built that way. Yeah. And so you just have to struggle with doing what you can and kind of juggling all the plates. Um, and, but yeah, in terms of like giving you this power fantasy, but making you feel kind of awful for even like having it and engaging with it. Uh, this game is the perfect Superman simulator. Yeah. It's what I want out of Superman's story. Is this yep. this exact dilemma. Yep. I saved the city from blowing up, but how many people died on my way there? <laughs> yeah. Too many of them. Too many of them, because I couldn't save them all. Uh, it's yep. important to say this isn't actually... At no point does it say Superman is deliberately generic. Yeah. We talked about but, that. You know, yeah. it's Superman. Yeah. <laughs> is it a bird... Is it a plane? It's Superman. Yeah. I mean, like, for a Twine game that's released for free, it doesn't really matter, but he's... I, it is admittedly, like, he says he wants it to be whoever. Yeah. In that super, Superman brings with it a lot of baggage that maybe, like, someone else would not want in their hero. But to me, this so just described the Superman game I always thought would be a good one in my head. So, mm-hmm. you know. And then... And then we were at Will-O-Wisp, which is a very strange game in made in RPG Maker that was in response to a Maddie Bryce tweet. <laughs> in I hope someday I am cool enough that someone will make a game based on a tweet that I make. It'll be your Naruto tweet. It, it I mean, there was Maddie <laughs> Bryce and there was Peter Molyneux and that's it. Or I guess Peter Molyneux, but the Molly Jam came out of actual Peter Molyneux tweets. Or did it come out of the Molyneux? I don't remember. There were two. I know. Oh, right. There were two. There was the, the first f- one was Molyneux, and okay. the second one were actual Molyneux quotes. So, real Peter Molyneux, fake Peter Molyneux, and Maddie Bryce are the three people who have had games made off of their tweets. I want to be the fourth. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure there's plenty of people. But it'll be a wor- it'll be a bad tweet that will be chosen. Sadly, yes. <laughs> You'll be very um, disappointed by the tweet that is made. Maddie Bryce's tweet was that she wanted a game where you played as a forest sprite who lured travelers in kind of a subversion of the idea of all the NPCs in an RPG kind of are, exist to help the player. And so, um, you know, Mike decided to make this and he makes a game in which you're like a forest, like a will-o'-wisp, I guess, in the title, and you're tasked in protecting your fairy kingdom by luring adventurers out of the forest by whatever means necessary, whether that's just out of the forest or get them killed or whatever. (laughs) And it's a game that lets you play with a lot of uh, like the trappings of just this very simple, singular forest environment and your interactions with NPCs and just keeps feeding you a variety of NPCs as you take on how dealing with them, however you want to. Yeah. Um, the, this game is super charming for me, even though, like, I don't really know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a thing. Like, I find its loop kind of satisfying, but I feel kind of bad for being, like, into just leading people astray over and over again. <laughs> well, it's playing on the idea of in adventure games, because the world is set up for the protagonist, or not adventure games, RPGs, whatever, um, these characters that are essentially protagonists in their own games all implicitly trust you. Mm-hmm. And you are able to use that power for your own ends and subvert the system that these people believe exists for them. So that's going to be satisfying. 
Yeah. Yeah, I... Yeah, it just... It kind of makes me feel guilty just the entire time. I think that's fine. You are all, You're leading people to be killed, so yeah. I mean, I don't have to kill them. Sometimes I did. <laughs> exactly. Then you felt really guilty. Yep. Um, I, I do want to point out just as a extra bit, uh, Mike talks about it in the post for all of these games, and we pointed out in the interview, but all of the games have a blog post associated with them, and they are worth reading, they are invaluable, and I wish every game maker made a blog post talking about their process. Uh, can't underline enough how amazing that is, especially for people like us who kind of care maybe too much about that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, um, I understand the idea of wanting to just let your things stand for themselves. Sure. I've never been a big death of the author person, obviously, since I told, like, I made this thing that we do twice a year. <laughs> yep. Um, but he talks about wanting to create a variety of representations of people in the typically RPG makers very good at making anime people, which as Americans, you just read as white for the most part. Um, which is maybe a discussion in and of itself outside the scope of this, but, uh, the game has a wide variety of people and, uh, like men and women, and you can like uh, you can like one of the options is to like like seduce them, and you can do that with anybody. And people of all sorts of races are depicted, and that that stuff's cool, even in the framework of this very small RPG maker game. And to something we didn't mention, like way back, one of the things um, he did on similar lines was he modded or redid things to Final Fantasy VI. Oh, sure. Uh, it was kind of outside the scope of us talking about it. But I, I wanted to talk about that idea of, or just mention that idea of, uh, especially in RPGs, which is such a well-nailed-down form in terms of characters and ideas, mm-hmm. that when you change them and you take certain parts but just change the other parts that are playing off our assumptions, how mm. do we react to that? I didn't. I haven't played Final Fantasy VI, so I haven't played through uh, uh, this remix of Final Fantasy VI, but I like that idea and studying that and i think that's cool yeah um the the it'll be in the list it's a final fantasy 6 recast and it's he takes the characters and basically just mixes up everyone's background and who they are in the game so the character that is edgar like the prince of figaro is now played by the terra sprite and it's the queen of figaro uh like Terra, like the girl with no memory who's been controlled by the Empire is cast as Gao, which is this young boy character. And just the idea of what happens when you like visually change, like you don't change anything other than the pronouns and the sprite. Yeah, you change but... enough to make sense, to make it like coherent, but everything yep. else is just the visuals of the character and how much that can recast how you look at a character in the context of these stories. Yep. Um, it's a thing I'd like to play with sometime, but I want to revisit six kind of the vanilla version also yeah. uh, sometime soon. So stay tuned for when we've that. played every fucking Final Fantasy game. Not everyone. We won't play two, one, two, or three probably. But <laughs> oh, goody! Stay we tuned won't play we eleven play... and fourteen. Maybe we'll play fourteen when we're done with everything else. I'm playing thirteen on my own, so we're probably never going to do casts about it. So Pangolin yeah. Valentine. <laughs> oh, great. Sure, why don't you talk about this? Oh, that was the platformer. 
Yes. Right. Uh, which has this really cool. You were not prepared for me. No. To hand to you. <laughs> I was handing off, and you threw it back. Sorry. <laughs> it's a uh, released on Valentine's Day last year, or this year. Mm-hmm. Christ, it's been a long year. Yes. <laughs> um, where you play as a pangolin, and you have to hand Valentine's cards out to other animals, and you work out which animal gets the correct Valentine's card by the writing on the card. So it'll be like. This, I don't know, it'll be like a reference to this character has a long nose and you find the animal with a long nose and you give them their Valentine's card. And you This is a, a game built for you because it contains terrible, terrible puns. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is your, your defining contribution to life. my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a very terrifying concept. <laughs> <laughs> but not wrong. <laughs> no. Uh, no, this is just a, a, a nice, pleasant Construct 2 platformer. I like that it's a Valentine's Day themed game. I, I'm a sucker for holiday games because they don't make them very much just because of what games are. But it's not predicated around romance anyway. It's just kind of the idea of when we were kids, you gave everyone a Valentine in your class for Valentine's Day. Did you? Yeah, that's totally a thing every kid in America does. You Everyone okay. gets like a shoebox they decorate, and then you bring Valentine's to the entire class, and you give one to everybody. Nope. Mm. Nope. Well, not over here. That is the context in which this game operates. Okay. In the Valentine, like, you just buy a box of like 30 little Valentine's Day cards, you get like Spider-Man ones, or like My Little Pony ones, or whatever, you know? Uh, whatever the kid is into, and then you put everyone's name on one, and then you give them out. <laughs> no, over here, from like the youngest age, people started deciding, this person's going to be my boyfriend today. Or I'm... I mean, there's some of that, but it, in school, like, the version of Valentine's Day is everyone gets a card. It's very uh, egalitarian, and, like, maybe if you want to deconstruct it a gross way, but at least, like, this is what this game is representing. Like, everyone gets a thing, because everyone's gross. special on Valentine's Day in the same kind I don't of boring way. I that's gross. That's cool. Give everyone a card. Give everyone yes, a card, Matt. Like, that part's great. What's but, the part like, that's gross? Break it down. I mean, I don't know this well enough to know what the shitty parts are. Like, the idea of, like, this enforced, like, equality just, like, makes everything feel really hollow. Like, nobody gives out, like, special cards. You just give out the same card to everybody. Like, there's no actual emotion to it. It's just the ritual of what we do every Valentine's Day. I mean, yeah. And so, like, it's great that nobody's left out, but, like, it doesn't feel special to get, a val- like, a bunch of Valentine's Day cards on Valentine's Day, because everyone gets a bunch of Valentine's Day cards on Valentine's Day. It's true. Things don't matter if they only ha- if they happen to anyone else. But, like, <laughs> everyone goes and spends money on, like, dumb little sugar hearts and Valentine's Day cards to give cards to everybody that nobody actually wants, because there's just piece of cardboard oh, sure, Spider-Man on them. sure, everything turns into ritual at some point when you get to those whole days. Like, it's an empty ritual meant to sell dumb products nobody actually needs. Like, that's the part that bothers me about this version for children. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. The, the part, I don't know, I've been a kid, I don't like, I don't like seeing people get left out. That's my way. Oh, sure. Like, that part's fine, I guess. But even as someone who, like, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend until I was out of high school, like a real serious one. I, uh, like, that stuff never, like, bothered me much. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm way closer to high school than you, also. High school, True. high school pain still going on. Ugh. high school's a bad place. Don't go to it. I was, I was ignorant of a lot of high school. This is outside the scope of this <laughs> game. 
But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a cute Valentine's Day theme that isn't explicitly about, like, romance in the way that you would think a Valentine's Day game would be. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Doesn't really have much going on. It's a Valentine waster. <laughs> Thanks. No problem. <laughs> so the next game is F to Newt, which we've, uh, talked about before, um, which is a twine game, um, about the day in the life of a being, I guess I'll say, in that you wake up one morning and you're uh, uh, an oxalotl, right? Yep. And whether or not that's weird to you or not is left up to you, but it's a twine game which exists to kind of spiral off in a thousand different ways. Having made a twine game, I just think of the tree that this game looks like, and it's just like... The beginning, and then just like radiates outward. In some, it's just like it's like a bullet hell boss that as takes, a twine tree. That takes more work, but in some ways that's easier and cooler than just having to bring it all back to a common endpoint. Because sure. there's so many different. Like, every single choice leads to a new set of choices. If you make like every A to B choice, A will have completely different doors you can access to the doors you can access through B, and none are shared. Yep. It's just it's just the levels of Outrun extended out into a larger pyramid. Except, except Outrun meets together. Like you, no, you it know. doesn't. If you take B or C, oh, both okay. paths can get to E. Why would you, some people? I guess you, either you're doing the easy one because you don't have much time in the arcade, or you go hard. Because why wouldn't you? Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying. Those come together in a way that this does not. Anyway, again, outside the scope of the discussion, F to Newt is improvisational in that, yeah, it will always spill out into something new and wild, and the things that you actually spill out into are always really weird and wild, whether it's, you know, a story of, I was a human, but I was turned into an animal, what does this mean? Or, here is the world of animals, uh, which can end, like, endings involve, like, government conspiracies, or becoming the leader of a government, or... Just going to a museum and going on a date. That's totally a thing you can do. Um, going to therapy, going to yeah. get your curse removed. The variety of interactions is just wild. And like, it always has a, a, a clear conclusion and they never meet back up again. And you will always get, uh, ending seven, which is the best part. Yeah. Every ending is seven, and it is an exhaustive list of ways to say you have reached ending seven. It took me a while to realize. That so you were like, always getting ending seven? I was like, okay, is so that one all right? Okay, that was the... Oh, he's doing it in this jokey way. I guess I'll work out which... Hang on a minute! These all add up to seven! Yep. I, uh... This is a game I playtested for him before it actually came out, so I played through every permutation of this game. Yeah. I love F to Newt. It's delightful. Yeah, it's, it is it's the, adorable. It's the purest form of things. You can press a thing to see what will happen. You can poke mm-hmm. at this system and this narrative to make it unfold in a thousand different ways and just see uh, the space, the possibility space of this story, and all of it is equally correct. Yeah, it also makes most choice games feel incredibly small afterwards. Yes. It definitely does. Because how can you support infinite choice when you have to do a bunch of authored content? Like, this game feels endless. Mm-hmm. It's not. There's, like, clearly, like, just a set of things, but it supports so many more player decisions about where to go than most games do. Definitely. It's because each authored choice is its own thing 
and doesn't mm-hmm. have to consider the others. And the tonal differences between them are incredible. Like some, a lot of them, like most of them are comedic, but just like they will vary from like serious to kind of spooky to like even action packed. I mean, and it does it all really well. Even the comedy is different in the tone. Like there's the the one where you go to the bar and you find the person who you think cursed you, and they're like, "No, you didn't get cursed. You, you know, this is your own thing. You got to go deal with your own issues, and you can choose to either deal with your own issues or to just go, no, this isn't me, and walk away from it." And mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. It's just, it's just a delight. It's a delightful thing that I'm so glad exists. Yeah, and this is more than uh, "Mother should kill me, father you ate me." Is the I think a better example of yes ending in that it'll always reach like a conclusion. It'll always give you a complete story, but it'll just roll with whatever your choices are. Yes, there's it, nothing that feels undersupported. It's the purest form of like dialogue between player character and game yeah because it's basically like telling a kid a story where you're just gonna riff on whatever they feed you and you're like oh and then what happened and they're like you go to the store and it's like okay well we went to the store and blah blah blah, and then something entirely different spills out yeah it's it's incredible it is a game that people should play it's the only game on this list that costs money Uh, you can get it it's an itch.io um or you can get it on gumroad i guess remember gumroad before itch.io took off uh no Oh, it was a it was a game dis- distribution thing. It also does like zines and stuff. People use it still for things. Oh, but... that's the zine thing that I've seen going around. Yes. Okay, I know what Gumroad is. Um, it, yeah, like it and Itchio kind of hit the game scene that we follow about the same time, and then Itchio took off. Um, but the money goes to uh, Oxlotl, like some sort of pres- like preservation charity. I think it goes to a good cause. Yes. Um, um, we talked about that one the most in the interview, so... It's true. Yes. So you've probably already heard a bunch about it. Ah, oh, what a cool game. Um, the next game is Euphrasia, a game of orchid bees, which is another Construct 2 game in which you uh, fly around and uh, you're a bee, uh, an orchid bee specifically, and it's about how orchid bees pollinate, and it gives you this place to explore and you have to collect the scents together to like create the pollen to attract a mate. Um, because the way orchid bees, uh, mate is that they have to produce pheromones, but they don't actually do it themselves. They just combine scents that they find while they're out and about. And so you're flying through this environment and you interact with things and collect scents, but you also run across the orchid that you're named after. And it gives you this idea of how orchid, physiology works in that orchids are weird disgusting plants that trap orchid bees in them (laughs) yeah uh in that they lure them in and they collect the pollen but they also like there is a glue that the orchid produces that glues the pollen onto the orchid bee and then it holds the orchid inside the plant while the glue dries and then releases them that was my favorite like chemical signals yeah the bit where you go inside the thing and like, okay i need this and then you're like hey why the hell are you not letting me out like, why do you think i just give away my shit without you helping me in return yep nature's a collaborative system yeah <laughs> and uh yeah it it gives you the sense of plants as like active agents in the world yes like in like a much more like startling way than dream of an acacia tree but in kind of the same way and that this plant it like has a, an awareness and it's interacting with the things around it because it exists first as just a t- puzzle to go down and like, right, yeah. i have to do this this is my resource and then you realize no it's not a resource at all it's a thing that is helping me 
it's really easy to think of trees like or plants or whatever as environment or like just an obstacle to like crawl on or across in games. And this gives you this plant that is no, it's it's a it's the character like you run across another bug that's like hiding from some uh what is it DDT? Mm-hmm. And you are immune to it because I guess orchid bees are just immune to DDT, which of course um and uh like you have a much more interesting interaction with the plant than you ever do like a fellow bug because the idea of like the how nature communes with nature has nothing to do with how alike things are and just how much they connect in terms of forming a coherent ecosystem. Yeah. And I think the way that those, the, they're kind of the only two interactions with something other than an orchid bee in the game and how different they are, I think says a lot about how we think about how these sort of interactions are supposed to be. Yes. In that normally it would be like the other bugs that you talk to and have personalities, but in this, it's just a beetle you fly past and you, your actual interactions with this plant. Yeah. And, it's gross. I don't like the idea of hairy plants. They creep me out. Why? The plants. Because it's gross. It's gross. Okay. It's gross. All right. We'll take word for it. Flowers are kind of gross if you think too hard about them. Everything's gross if you think too hard about it. That's true. It's true. Orchids can be gross. I'm just saying. The sound of birds singing outside your window is pretty good in this segment now. Oh, well, you know, we're communing with nature talking about these. I have a tree outside my window and I cannot get these birds to shut up, despite the fact that it's mid, or not in the mid, but early November and they should all be gone now. Global warming is ruining this podcast, just so you know. <laughs> okay. There's opposed- nothing I can do about it. It's just going to be in my audio track. And so? Oh, I did want to say, um, briefly that, uh, if you check the credits, I am thanked in the credits of this because I was part of his Patreon after the fact. Oh. I'm in a video game. Put me on the giant bomb. You did you. it! You made it! <laughs> you... So, okay, so another thing. So I was playing Broken Age and I'm like, oh, is Matt in the credits of this? Didn't he back it? And then I accidentally pressed space and stopped the credits. Yeah. The anticlimax forever, never known whether you're in the credits to Broken Age or not. I am in the credits to Broken Age. Nice. Nice. Um, and we have one last game. We do. Yep. Which I now have a thousand tabs open, so I need to find it. Oh, okay. I was waiting for you. <laughs> Sorry. And, uh, the last game we're going to cover is Scribbly Walrus, which came out as we were playing games to lead up to this. Which, Scribbly Wal- Walrus is a very small. I, I assume it's Construct 2. I actually didn't look that close, but, uh. I think so. It is, uh, you can find it on Game Joel or Itch.io. And it's, it's based on like a Game and Watch and that it's very short, small interactions of your, a little walrus and you can just kind of swim and dig up shells and like flop onto the ice with another walrus. Mm-hmm. And, um, of all of the games that Mike Joffy's made, this one is like the least narrative and least, um, ecologically like aware of them but in creating a tone of just your cute walrus floating around and look at those other cute walrus and if you read his thing about walruses being you know walruses are in danger all animals are endangered apparently at this point pretty much um, and you you find like a porpoise and they're, they're it's super rare and stuff like that um 
it gives you a sense of like nature is just a thing to delight in through games. Like it feels consistent in that, Hey, like it's cool to talk about all the weirdness of animals, but Hey, just look at this walrus chilling out on this ice. Isn't that beautiful and adorable and relaxing and a thing you appreciate having exi- like that exists in the world. Cause, Cause not only can you just interact with it, like that's a thing that's happening somewhere right now. Yeah. And he says on the post about it, that is specifically a reaction against the idea of polish and that something has to be fully considered and thought through and justified to exist as art and you can tell that because it is just very much here these horses here's a cool thing and it is cool and you that is enough mm-hmm. and it celebrates that in the in a totally honest way because it doesn't have the like the bent of the oh the the was the, the what the pet the pet, uh, loris yeah which is the most direct this is the least direct this is just nature is an interesting place and these are things that are happening around us and that's mm-hmm. en- that's enough it doesn't need to be about that that can just be a thing to enjoy yes and it was a good time yep so that leads us to the end what conclusions do we draw from all this jackson i like animals animals are pretty cool i don't know enough about animals that's the thing i learned you need to know more about animals I, where, can i subscribe to zoo books is that still around yeah is that a thing when you were kids no it's probably an american thing it was like a you get like an infomercial you could like subscribe to all these colored magazines about animals for probably way too much money but i was a kid so i didn't know <laughs> should go to the zoo we have a good zoo here i didn't go this year again go to the zoo i should go to the zoo check out the zoo yep all sorts of great things at the zoo it also makes me want to make more games yep because the excess been work- you, yeah you go mike's been working in games for like i like two years at this point and he's made like how many games are we talk about like almost a dozen in like three or four different game making tools man i need to step it up <laughs> yeah as someone who takes a while to finish things just because of who i am and the kind of person i am and like, it just takes me a while to push through things and i like I know we need to get over the guilt of that because that's partially a mental health thing. But mm-hmm. just stop worrying and do a thing, Jackson. Because mm-hmm. people do and they're good. Yeah. You were saying something about accessibility? Uh, yes, I was just saying that you play this and you realise, oh, I really don't need to learn a thousand game maker tools before I do. I can experiment these concepts in these easy places first. Uh, and use the part of my brain that's making it to actually think about what I'm doing rather than learning a rote language. Yep. Absolutely. We're not programmers. We don't talk to programmers. <laughs> nope. I'm just saying, like, we've done two game makers and neither of them are game makers that would describe themselves as programmers. So next time, tune in for the Will Wright gameography. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, also, um, I mean, we talked about the interview, but I think creating games that are both advocacy and educational are underserved fields, uh, especially for things that aren't just look at this like societal, like interaction. Like a lot of people make personal narratives about the things that they suffer from and with, and that's valid. I don't want to say it's not, but you can make games about anything, even stuff like, here's this animal and it's endangered or here's people like getting wild animals as pets. It's bad or just, Hey, look, Marvel at this thing that exists in the world. Yeah. And all of that can be made into entertaining games. Mm -hmm. 
as someone who is always, always wants something to be full of import and story, I need to get over myself. And these games make me feel like they are over themselves in a great way. <laughs> yeah. I had a good time. Good time was had. Yep. So that closes out this gameography. Uh, we're not going to do questions because this is a very special episode. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to those of you in America. I hope you feel bad for what your country's done. I do. Um, and to everyone else, we will be back in December. What are you for, giving thanks for? Um, surviving the winter and duping indigenous peoples to helping us do so. Okay, is there a specific thing it's a reference to, or is it just generally? Uh, hey, thanks. The pilgrims didn't know how to grow corn, and the Native Americans taught them how to grow corn. Oh, and you're we kidding! We all sat down and Wait, broke bread together. It's seriously about <laughs> thanks to the people we destroyed, or you destroyed. Yes. I guess no, I'm... it's terrible. <laughs> I guess you didn't Wait. know. Wait, the... I thought it was in terms of like we like similar to Independence Day. And that thanks no. for our, our independence. Oh, you are kidding me! All of the, like, kitsch decorations are pilgrim and Native American, like, you know, that is homie, the sitting down thing. together, that is the turkeys g- and corn nonsense. How did you give thanks? Well, we killed most of them and took all their land. Yeah, thanks. we gave them smallpox, converted them to Christianity, and took away all of their lands. That is the grossest th- I didn't... Live reactions to what Thanksgiving is. I told you it was a gross colonialist holiday. <laughs> in reality, we in reality we eat turkey and watch football. I don't watch football, but I will eat turkey. Should watch football. But yeah, it comes out of a super gross place. Should eat turkey and we'll play some Madden. We'll be back next. We'll be back at the end of the next month for the final episode of 2014, Jackson. We're we are. The year of the PS3 is nigh. Oh, you're right. I was going to do some. We're done. <laughs> you can find us at normalmapping.com. You know our Twitter handles. Please rate and review us. Send us emails. We'll be playing Minecraft next month. There'll be videos coming up of that. That's all we've got. Let's close this out. Um, shame on you, America. Thanks. <laughs> Giving. <laughs> Okay, there we go. Hello, my name is Michael Jaffe, and thank you for playing my game. As a reward for completing the game, here's the basic information you have learned from the game, presented to you in song. The primate endemic to Southeast Asia. Slender and slow loris are species that are facing extinction. Threaten survival of the Lord's people. Smuggle them because of demand from wealthier nations. Lord, 
just make bad pets. They urinate everywhere, and they have a poisonous bite. Just cause on YouTube they look cute. Don't buy a Loris. They will suffer horribly. Their incisors get ripped out. I don't care how much you love it, owning one makes you a big asshole. 30 to 90% capture will die, and that's just in transit. We need more die from malnourishment. Does that seem so cute now? Not just the pet trade. Threaten survival of the Loris. There is also deforestation and destruction of their shrinking habitat. So please just adopt a cat or a dog. Endangered primate, anyways. Is it because you're so great? You're really not. So just get a fish or don't have a pet and stop screwing with the environment and economy of other countries. Thank you. Oh.